0: Happy Saturday. It's October 15th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker.
1: And I'm Michael Haney.
0: And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail.
1: Ashley, it's fall in New York, and I can tell, not by the leaves turning, but I walk around Midtown the other day, and all the finance bros have their fleece vests on again. They're just happy and... Anna Delvey's back in town, and everything seems to be right back where it should be.
0: In just a matter of minutes, Michael, you're going to have the horrific Halloween parties taking over Lower Manhattan, and you won't be able to get around town because of the Halloween parade. Oh. What, what are you're
1: you a Halloween Grinch,
0: Mom? That's right, my friend. I don't do costume. You should know this about me.
1: Ooh, okay, girl.
0: Gauntlet throne. You're in London now. It's all about Guy
1: Fawkes Day, so whatever.
0: I don't even know what that is. I mean, I'm new to town. I'm still figuring things out. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the circle line is all about. Okay.
1: Well, we've got a great show for everyone today. We've got Eleanor Cummins on how TikTok has turned a rare disease into a brand. We have Joseph Bulmore here to tell us about a big lawsuit roiling the London art world. And we've got Michael Oreskes on two Very revealing books about Trump world. So, lots to talk about this week, Ashley.
0: A lot to discuss, Michael. It's been a fairly dramatic week in the news. But first, Michael, the superfluous stuff. We need to talk about the Freeze Art Fair happening here in London. I'm sorry.
1: No, I know you went. So, tell us all about it, what you've seen, how you, any billionaires loading up their shopping carts with big paintings? Was it crazy fashion? What did you get there? Well,
0: it's really strange. I used to go to Fries in New York and I've been to Fries in London before. It had been fairly subdued recently. Last year, I wouldn't say it was a ghost town, but it was certainly less populous than now. Now I'm pretty sure I got COVID. I mean, I went twice. It was like more crowded than a Harry Styles concert at Madison Square Garden. And as interesting as the art was, what was more fascinating was the people watching. But it's bizarre how... An art fair has become also a fashion show, also a culinary event, and also an excuse for all of London to just party its socks off until three o'clock in the morning. It's Unbelievable what's been. You can't get an Uber, can't get around town. Good luck taking the two because it shuts down at a certain hour. It's just been sheer chaos here in a really fun way. But you would never know that we have a completely disastrous prime minister. And you would certainly never know that the pound is tanking by the amount of money that's been spent. Although I suppose that that's on behalf of foreign tourists who are here to buy their cocktails at Claridge's with incredibly favorable exchange rates. Who knew?
1: Yeah, finally getting the best of the dollar, being stronger to the pound. And yeah, as you remind me, also, we have a fun piece of writing this week by Stuart Heritage looking at the charm offensive now being undertaken by Liz Trust as she tries to regain some stability in her government. But as he points out, it's hard to have a charm offensive when you have no personality. So take a look at that story.
0: Are we really going to falter for that? I mean, I feel like she's such a flawed character that the personality in many ways seems to be the least of her concerns. Mm. It's Boris is a hard act to follow. Love him or hate him. And
1: Boris, meanwhile, is already on the lecture circuit. He was over here in Colorado this week giving a speech for $150,000. He's already starting to grind that big money machine. So I'm sure he's like, come at it, Liz. I'm going to line my pockets for a while now. Well, as you said, we've got a busy week this week. Where would you like to begin?
0: I hate the fact that this guy is still occupying so much of my headspace, but I think we've got to start with Donald Trump because there are two new books out this week that shed even more light on what a complete disaster, narcissist, and criminal this guy is. Thank goodness we didn't have to read them. We have someone much more skilled to make sense of all of this for us. All right, we've got Michael Oreskes here to talk to us all about the two buzziest books, politically speaking, of the moment. The first is called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics by Michael Cohen. And the second is The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World, none other than Gordon Sondland. Wow. What a cast of characters. Welcome, Michael.
2: Indeed. And what a lot of words for titles, too. Whatever happened to like just simple titles?
1: Everyone needs a subtitle now. You've got to explain the thesis of the
2: book. Right. Exactly. Well, what's fascinating is, of course, these are two people who are probably best known for testifying against Donald Trump. And therein lies the connection between the two of them and the rub of these stories, because both of them describe how Trump and his circle of sycophants turned on them and really crushed them when it became clear they were no longer part of the Trump following.
1: So my first question, Michael, you've got Michael Cohen, who is a compromised, unreliable narrator, as they might say in the film world. And he's been down this road before writing books what makes him so fascinating and why is this book different than his other ones
2: well it's a good question and and he is and by his own admission is a compromised narrator but he also has that quality that fits red smith's definition of a writer red smith the great sports columnist once said that writing was easy you just open up your vein and let it flow well that's what you get with michael cohen he just effuses his anger his pain his upset And a lot of it doesn't necessarily all fit together. And you don't really know for sure what's his eyewitness account versus what's something he surmises. And one of the real challenges about these books is that what they're trying to describe is the power of Donald Trump to shape events without actually directly getting his fingerprints on them. So that doubles down on the problem of the reliability of them as witnesses. They're describing how things were feeling and seeming to them. And yet, neither Sondland nor Cohen necessarily can give you a smoking gun to show that Donald Trump was actually behind many of the misfortunes that befell them. The best example of this actually is Cohen describes quite vividly the way he was released and then thrown back into the Otisville Federal Prison. And he makes a pretty convincing case that there was some kind of miscarriage there in which the Federal Prison Bureau tried to get him to sign a gag order to keep him from writing the book about Donald Trump. Not this book, but his previous, his original book. And yet he has no proof that Trump himself or even anybody around Trump forced them or ordered them to do this. So he describes vividly what happened to him and warns us all that if that can happen to him, why couldn't it happen to anybody? But he can't actually prove directly that Trump was behind it, even though, of course, all of these people ultimately, they were all federal officials, and they all ultimately answered to the president of the United States.
1: And then we've got Gordon Sondland on the other side. Tell us, what's most surprising about Sondland's book here?
2: Well, Sondland was a Republican wannabe. He spent years and years, and in many ways, the best part of his book is his description of the years and years he spent trying to become somebody in the Republican Party, basically trying to buy an ambassadorship by giving and raising money. He was a pretty successful hotelier, and so he had a fair amount of money, and he went out raising money for various Republican presidential candidates over the year. And Trump wasn't his kind of candidate, but getting close to a president was his total objective. So he did it and then paid a very high price when he became the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. And in the course of that, somehow got in the middle of Trump's efforts to pressure the Ukrainians into help him find the dirt on Hunter Biden and on Hillary Clinton. And that, as you may recall from the impeachment, is where we all really got introduced to Gordon Sondland when he testified about what he did and didn't know about the things Trump had done to pressure the Ukrainians and to essentially blackmail them and hold for ransom military aid that was supposed to go to Ukraine and that he held back, hoping he could pressure the Ukrainians to help him with his political dirty ops. So, Sondland is one of these guys who paints himself as an innocent in all of this. But in fact, it's the dysfunction of our political system that allowed him to buy the ambassadorship that put him in the position to get crosswise with Trump. And that is actually a pretty interesting thing to have a full accounting of.
0: Michael, who's the better writer, Sondland or Cohen?
2: Or their are ghostwriters? Well, Sondland at least is gracious enough to thank his ghostwriter. And Cohen... did something interesting in this book. I don't know whether he himself or someone else helped him write the book, but he does acknowledge that he actually hired a reporter to help him try to reconstruct some of these episodes and what really happened and why the Justice Department really took such a strong take against him. I'm not sure he fully succeeded in that, but it was an interesting approach to a book to see him actually acknowledge that he had others help him do his reporting.
0: Despite the fact that both of these gentlemen are fairly unreliable narrators, their work still occupies a quasi-important place, right, in terms of reporting on this administration and its many crimes and unconventional behaviors. How are we supposed to weigh that with the fact that these two characters are somewhat complicated as well.
2: Right. Well, of course, one point to remember is that their key protagonist, Donald Trump, is somewhat complicated, too. I think all of this is important source material for our ultimate effort to figure this all out. The big thing that both Cohen and Sondland are trying to warn against is how fragile and corruptible our institutions really are and the lessons to be learned here are really about how to keep individuals like a Donald Trump like a Bill Barr, the attorney general, even if they want to go rogue, even if they want to corrupt an institution, how do you build institutions in a democratic society that can withstand that kind of pressure? And you can look back at the Trump years and you can say, well, we did survive, which is true. But you can also look back and say, boy, there are so many places where the institutions buckled or nearly buckled. And so I think a lot of what they have here, you wouldn't buy these books for their literary merit. I think what they really provide is at least that rough first draft of what really happened here and what is it that we need to learn to keep it from happening again.
1: And I'm just wondering, is there anyone who hasn't written a book yet that you're eager to see come forward with a book?
2: Oh, what an interesting question, right? Of course, there may be some people in the firmament that we don't even really realize have eyewitness accounts that we wish we could get. But the person whose honest book I'd love to read is Donald Trump himself, but I despair that we will get that.
1: Yeah, I think I'd also put Ivanka up there if she actually came came forward with a true accounting of it all. That would be unlike her husband.
0: Gentlemen, what about Melania? That's the one I want to read. There you go.
2: Well, wouldn't that be interesting? And she might actually tell us some truths.
1: Depending on what that renegotiated prenup takes in,
2: though. Right. But she may have a gag order as effective as the one that the Justice Department tried to get Michael Cohen to sign. We actually don't know.
1: And then there's Barron. Maybe he'll write it up
2: <laughs> one day. <laughs> The sun also rises.
0: (laughs) Michael, thank you so much for joining us and for reading these books. So frankly, we don't have to, but we know that they're
2: an important (laughs) part of the record. Everyone has their service to play.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we're sure there'll be more Tales from the Crib here again soon. So we look forward to having you back on to discussing all of those as well.
2: Thank you, Ashley, Michael.
0: Very well. Are you going to be picking up either of those books?
1: I don't think I will be because I've just had Michael's wonderful distillation of them. But here's Joseph Bulmore.
0: All right, Michael, we've got Joseph Bulmore here. He's going to tell us all about a countess who once drilled a hole in her head to prove a point. She is now suing her art advisor over the quote unquote unprofessional sale of a French painting that cost her $9 million in profit. Welcome, Joe. Joe.
3: Hello, guys. It's um, a bit of a crazy story and not least because it features the Countess of Weems and March, who is one of the most or possibly the most eccentric aristocrat in all the kind of gentry, best known for, as you say, drilling a hole in her own forehead to somehow prove... LSD and psychedelics were good for your mental health. We'll probably get back to that, I think. But the story doesn't focus on that so much as a painting that she sold in 2014 under the advice of her art advisor called Simon Dickinson. And then six months later, it was sold for six million pounds more than that to someone else when they discovered, unbeknownst to them, the autograph of the painter, a French master called Chardin, after a very light clean. So she's saying that he, she was duped out of what could be more money because this painting was not done by his studio or his students. In fact, it was done by the master himself, hence the lawsuit. And yeah, it's getting pretty spicy from what I can tell.
0: Now, Joe, this strikes me as a fairly frivolous lawsuit, although perhaps I'm wrong because I mean, the art market is so shambolic anyway. Like who's to say this is the nature of the industry. Something's worth nothing today and a lot tomorrow now. But is this more of a fraud issue because the origin of the painting is being contested or is this more they are mad at the guy and trying to get money from him?
3: I think it's probably a bit of both. I think they would have sold this painting in the first place for all the reasons that aristocrats tend to sell paintings, which is they're running out of ready cash. And there's a big hole in the roof, so they need to do something. But in this case, it's kind of an interesting, I don't know, parable of of how the art market works. Because the most high profile thing like this was the Salvatore Mundi, which everyone thought was a worthless copy for years and years and years and had a pretty undistinguished history. And then come the right amount of money and a Saudi buyer and Christie's auction house, suddenly... It's being revealed actually as a Leonardo. There could be something similar going on with this, a painting that's done by Chardin, who's not that famous, but he's a well-known French master. They thought it was done by students. And then lo and behold, suddenly, now that a a French billionaire wants to buy it, the experts discover that actually this was Chardin himself. So, yeah, I think it's kind of it is indicative of, of how the art market works, that sometimes the game is rigged against you and you can't win either way. If I reckon if they hadn't sold it originally, it still wouldn't have been discovered as the master Shardin work that it is. But it all gets very complicated, as you can tell. It's hard to know who's to blame, really.
0: Do you think that the Countess has any hope of reclaiming this money?
3: I don't know. It's one of these things where it's kind of taking one expert's word instead of another. But it's especially difficult when you're in the art market and so much is kind of up to interpretation and opinion. And I don't know. A lot of these conversations happened a long time ago, 1992, when the original kind of appraisal took place. So there's a lot of recollections varying, to use the royal family's favourite phrase.
1: This is one of those things that has actually said about the freeze and everything, there's a lot of money at stake. And then you've got some people who want to make more money and are not happy with how their investment was or was not handled.
3: Definitely. And London in particular right now, obviously it's freeze week at the moment, but in general, there's the last kind of 20 years, there's been an influx of lots of interesting, should we say, foreign money. And naturally art is the asset to which they flock. So the waters get muddied even more as there's even bigger players with even more dubious backgrounds trying to hide wealth via assets. So the value of a painting can go all over the shop based on which expert is asked and who's in the pay of who and who's kind of pulling the strings. It's a murky, murky place. And this is just another case, I think, in that murky, murky pond.
1: But Joe, before we go, I just want to go back to Just a little tidbit about taking an electric drill to your skull and her home, which was then used to be known as Beckley Park is now known for as Brain Blood Hall. Can you just explain? I mean, and by the way, did this affect her thinking about how to, how to look at these paintings?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't like to say there could be something going on. She is, by all accounts, a lovely lady, but a very eccentric lady, the Countess of Wombs and March. But yeah, and she was, a, as many aristocrats were in the 60s, she was very colourful and experimental, especially with psychedelics like LSD. And she has been the kind of foremost campaigner in using psychedelics in mental health treatment, which used to be a really fringe idea, but now it's becoming more and more mainstream. But she took it to its extreme in 1970 when she positioned herself in front of a camera and got an electric drill and drilled into the top of her forehead, all because her theory is that the way blood interacts with your brain is key to understanding how psychedelics work. So she was trying to get at the kind of various humours, to use the medieval term, of her brain. And she still is campaigning that this could well be. It's called trepanning, and it's a kind of medieval practice. She's still campaigning for this to become a commonplace thing on the NHS for people with mental health issues. So, although some of her research has definitely got some credibility, this one I think we'll have to take with a pinch of salt. Thanks, guys. Loving to speak as always. Good to see you, Joe. Take care.
0: Thank you, Joe. Great to see you. Always love having Joe on. What a funny beat he covers for us.
1: Rich people behaving crazily. <laughs>
0: yes, indeed. Okay, so now why don't we move over to a another intriguing... I mean, it's not quite as insane as the blood-brain barrier that we just discussed, but there's another bizarre health trend. It turns out having Hashimoto's disease is one of the trendiest things that millennials can do these days. And we've got Eleanor Cummins here to tell us all about what's happening on TikTok with regards to a thyroid disorder known as Hashimoto's. Eleanor is a freelance science journalist whose work has been published in Wired, the New York Times, and National Geographic. And this is her first story for Airmail, and boy, is it a doozy. Welcome, Eleanor. Okay, Eleanor, first of all, what is Hashimoto's?
4: Yes, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition. It's called autoimmune thyroiditis as well. And the idea is that the body starts to attack. Itself. And in this case, that attack takes place in the thyroid gland, which is really important for a lot of basic bodily functions, including like metabolism.
1: Okay. So we've got that out of the way. But now tell us how it's gone from a lesser known thyroid disorder to, thanks to TikTok videos, a hot disease that's almost its own brand that celebrities and other people want to believe they have. How did we get here?
4: I think that's something that is a really interesting sort of case, right? I think that diseases trend somewhat frequently. We've seen a lot of conversation about things like chronic Lyme or other sort of mystery ailments. What's interesting about Hashimoto's is that it is fairly common. One in 20 Americans will develop the disorder in their lifetimes. What we're seeing, though, is this sort of explosion of, I mean, like 300 million views on TikTok videos about the disorder. And I think what makes it so compelling to people is that it is something where you can kind of craft a really easy narrative about all of these problems in your life being attributable to this disorder. And then once you start to take action, everything's sort of being resolved. It's like a hero's journey almost through thyroid disease.
1: So you mentioned in your story that everyone from Oprah Winfrey on Down seems to have like self-diagnosed themselves, right? And, and it's almost, this is like, thanks to these TikTok videos, it's the second version of you feel something, you start to Google your symptoms, like, oh, I've got this, right? As we've been saying around the office, it's kind of like this self-diagnosed munch of your own problems, right? And these people now know themselves as hashtag Hashi Warriors. Where does this all lead? Is it healthy? Is it wrong? Are people going to hurt themselves? We've seen a lot of crazy TikTok videos lead, especially among teenagers, lead to crazy, sometimes even fatal behavior, right? Where is this going to go?
4: I think that the majority of people probably really do have Hashimoto's. What is troubling is that they seem to attribute anything that is sort of uncomfortable or challenging in their life to the disease. So because Hashimoto's affects the the thyroid and that has these downstream consequences for the metabolism, one of the big sort of side effects is weight gain. And so what you'll see is people who have Hashimoto's get a diagnosis and then get treatment, which is replacing sort of the thyroid glands function with an artificial thyroid. And then they still say nothing is fixed. So then they start to engage in these sort of alternative medical therapies, right? Where specialized diets that sort of ping around the internet, strange sort of exercise routines that are allegedly going to fix Hashimoto's problems specifically. And I think it is possible too that a lot of these people are just spending tons of time and money and energy trying to get doctors to up their dose or sort of change the approach. When in reality, I think a lot of physicians would say, these things aren't related. You replace the thyroid gland and then you move forward the best you can.
0: Eleanor, I mean, I find this trend so... I don't know if confusing is the right word. Why do you think so many people are looking to TikTok and social media for answers? Is this symptomatic of a more widespread distrust of the medical system and of science or this sort of crowdsourcing medical opinion? How do you explain it as someone who's been covering science for so long? I
4: think that there are a few factors here. One is obviously that in the U.S. with our insurance based in sort of employer-based care, a lot of people don't have access to good in-person doctors who can take their particular case seriously and look at all of the factors that are unique to them. So I think that sort of pivots people to these sort of social media spaces, where the problem is that you're actually not really talking about your own condition, right? You're talking about like other people's impressions of themselves. And it's kind of like a funhouse mirror of any sort of disease, because that advice is not specific to you. It's, it has to be very generalized, right? To reach an audience of people who have Hashimoto's and probably people who don't, but who identify with some of these sort of amorphous symptoms like weight gain, brain Fog and so on. So, I think that really a lot of this does come down to money. And then, I think in particular, like many autoimmune disorders, Hashimoto's disproportionately affects women. And I think that there's a well established bias in the medical system against women. They have not been studied rigorously. Most of the sort of default research takes place on everything from male mice to male humans. And this also plays out sort of in these clinical settings where women are, I think, very easily dismissed as hysterical when they're. Symptoms don't resolve when the sort of standard of care has been offered. It's like we gave you these synthyroid sort of medications. Everything should be okay. Why are you still complaining? And so, if your doctor isn't going to have that conversation with you, certainly millions of people on TikTok will.
0: All right. So, we know that Hashimoto's is the trend of the moment, but what are you looking out for next? What do you think is going to become the next Hashimoto's?
4: Oh, that's a great question. I feel like anything is a viable candidate if Hashimoto's is. Like I said, I was so surprised that this became a trend because it's something that we've known about for over a Hundred years. There is a treatment. There are also ways to diagnose this fairly clearly with a blood test. Like there's nothing mysterious about it. So the fact that Hashimoto's is, is sort of up for this kind of dramatization and sort of internet application makes me think that truly anything is up for this kind of treatment. I feel like this story kind of broke my brain a little bit and I don't know that I have any ability to prognosticate anymore.
0: Well, Eleanor, no doubt you will be keeping an eye out and looking at TikTok for us and reporting back with all the latest health fads or illness fads. What are we supposed to call these anyway?
4: Yeah, I think illness fad is totally the right thing because it's sort of different than like disease, right? Like there's sort of the medical classification, but it's really the illness experience that I think is up for debate and sort of the fuel to this fire. So yeah, I feel like illness sort of trend or fad is a good one. The hypochondriasis is real, especially too when you're like flipping through potentially hundreds of TikTok videos in a setting. One of the things I thought was so interesting about the sort of Hashimoto's videos is that they really do emphasize the general aspects of the disease. So things that we've all experienced like fatigue, unexpected or unexplained weight gain, right? And those are kind of the way that they pull you in. So anyone identifies with those and then they're suddenly like being sort of rabbit holed into this Hashimoto's diagnosis. And potentially if they take it seriously enough, either following sort of sham kind of cures for the disorder or really spending tons of times in a doctor's office trying to figure out if this is
0: legit. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us and for your fabulous story. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you for making time. You know, what's crazy about that story, Ashley, is like, I totally understand how, I mean, I admit to being a susceptible hypochondriac, but it's why I never Google any symptoms because I'm the guy who'd be like, oh, look, I have some chapped skin on my thumb and I, it's, I'm one step away, one click away on Google from believing I have leprosy or something. So it's just a reminder. when She said you get pulled into these things because of the commonalities, not because of the distinctions.
0: I mean, look, do I have fatigue, brain fog and weight gain? Absolutely. Do I have Hashimoto's? I do not. I'm so susceptible to these things too, Michael. I basically self-diagnosed myself with Hashimoto's while reading this article which is hysterical. But it's such an incredibly slippery slope. It goes back to this age-old human condition of always looking for answers. Like, as if we can figure out what the answer is for what's wrong with us, then maybe we can fix it and everything will be perfect. Things to discuss. More on that front soon. It used to be you would just call a friend and your friend would tell you that you're totally insane. And now you go on TikTok where people tell you that, in fact, you're completely sane. Exactly, Michael, anything to recommend? I do. And it's
1: a book... We have reviewed in this week's issue, it's the Paul Newman memoir called Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Now, if you're like me and you devoured the recent HBO documentary about Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward, you will also eat up this book. But even if you didn't watch that, and I highly encourage you to, this is a real pleasure for any movie fan. It's pulled together from the series of interviews Newman and Woodward commissioned of friends and family when he was alive. And while the documentary used that for its spine, now the book fleshes out Newman even more. The real pleasure for me here is that the book is in that same Newman voice we loved in his performances. Confident, but with a bit of self-deprecation. It's a good book for these coming long nights. It's called Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. And you, Ashley?
0: It's starting to feel like fall and winter here in London. It's not getting light until about 7.30 in the morning. I know that the 3.30 sunsets are coming, but I am still living in an Italian summer thanks to an incredible novel called Last Summer in the City. It was written by John Franco Caligaric in 1973. And from my understanding, it really hasn't been in print all that much since. Caligaric had arrived in Rome in his early 20s. He was a newspaper correspondent and then ultimately became a novelist. Last Summer in the City takes place in the late 1960s and it follows around a 'er ne'er-do-well Gazara, who lives in an alcoholic stupor most of the time, has trouble with women, has trouble with jobs, but eventually on his 30th birthday, meets a woman named Ariana, and it all turns around. It's a wonderful book, not only if you like to mentally travel back to the 1960s in Rome, but also for anyone who appreciates a good love story. It recently came back into print, and I've been enjoying it tremendously. There's a great afterword by Andre Aciman that you might want to read as well. It is called Last Summer in the City by John Franco Caligueric. Put it on my list. Great. Thank you all so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out?
1: Morning Meaning is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Gear, Nathan King, and Julie Vitali. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of morning meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. Most of all, thank you again for joining us.